from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. So we're going to quadruple the amount, the cumulative amount of solar we've ever built in the world between now and the end of 2030. And yet, that's 20% shy of where we need to be uh, in, on a net zero pathway. What What's the fundamental constraint that you see there? So personally, I think the, the fundamental constraint is that our forecasts are probably wrong. Ah, uh, it's getting colder. The leaves are turning. Pumpkin spice lattes abound. That's right. You guessed it. It's that time of year. The season of Jenny Chase's solar opinions. I'm Shail Khan. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. At this point, I have no idea how many of you already know this about me, but early in my quote-unquote climate tech career, I was basically all about solar. Prior to EIP, I spent the better part of a decade leading GTM Research, which was a market analysis firm with a team of analysts who were tracking and forecasting the energy transition. And at our core, the sort of where we started and made a name for ourselves was in looking really deeply at what was happening with solar power. This was starting in the late 2000s when solar module prices, modules, mind you, not systems, were in the $5 a watt range. And today, of course, you could build entire systems for maybe 10% of that. These days, of course, my remit is broader than just solar and even broader than just energy. But I, I try to keep a close eye on the solar market because I continue to fundamentally believe that solar is going to be the bedrock of decarbonization. Put another way, if you ask me what single technology will do the most to mitigate climate change, short of some potential geoengineering or nuclear fusion future, my answer is solar. But in what to me seems like a kind of a weird turn of events, I think solar actually gets talked about less today in climate tech circles than it did a decade ago, precisely because it's a somewhat more mature market. But mature does not equal boring, or easy for that matter, and just because I'm confident that solar will be a long-term winner does not mean it will be a smooth ride. Anyway, back to waxing about my own solar history, back when solar was my game, apart from my own rock star team at GTM, the person whose views I respected most was Jenny Chase, who led the solar practice at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. And unlike me, Jenny has stuck with it. So I'll posit that... There is no single person with a deeper understanding of global solar past and present than Jenny, full stop. Which is why I get so excited when once a year, Jenny publishes her annual list of solar opinions, as she calls it, some popular, some less so. She did this year's version last month, so I brought her on so that I could cherry pick the opinions that I thought were most interesting, and we could take a ride together through Solar World. Here's Jenny. Jenny, welcome to Catalyst. Thank you, Shale. It's nice to be here. I am very excited to talk about solar opinions. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. You listed out, I don't know how many, 50 or so opinions about solar and about surrounding technologies, to be fair. I've cherry-picked some of my favorites, or at least the ones that I think are most interesting to talk about. And so we're going to run through a bunch of them and discuss, in some cases, one by one. In some cases, I've bundled a few together that are related to each other. So let's let's dig in. I'm going to start with a combo of two opinions. All right, so the first is opinion number three. I'm going to state the number for anyone who wants to follow on on Twitter as they listen to this. Um, okay, opinion number three, solar is the cheapest source of bulk electricity in many countries 
and one of the quickest to deploy, which in the 2022 global energy crisis has been invaluable. Um, that I think is fairly straightforward. The second part of it, though, the limits to PV build this year have been supply, installation labor, grid access, and permitting. And then I want to combine that with your opinion number six, which relates, I think, in particular to the supply question, um, which is prices for freight, polysilicon, steel, and aluminum went up in the last two years. Freight is back down, but polysilicon is still above $37 a kilogram, which is up from a low of $6.3 per kilogram in the summer of 2020. We, this being you, expect it to drop back to nearly $15 a kilogram early in 2023 and increase supply. Okay, so stepping back from this, um, maybe talk a little bit about what have been the bottlenecks that PV has faced this year. I think from the outside, you often think of solar as, at this point, this sort of like growth juggernaut, but it hasn't been exactly an easy ride in 2022, despite all the tailwinds. It's not been an easy ride, but we are forecasting officially 251 gigawatts of build this year, up from 182 last year. So that's pretty strong growth, and I wouldn't be surprised if it comes out at higher than 251 gigawatts. A lot of markets are building because they're seeing their version of the energy crisis. And for example, in Germany, residential solar installers are booked out till well into next year because they do not have the teams to send to put modules on the roof. And that might make us think that, wait, the issue is entirely downstream. But the prices suggest that actually that's not true and that all the manufacturing in the market is in fact going somewhere. Uh, we think that there's enough polysilicon made this year to make over 300 gigawatts of modules. So with 251 installed, then that would still, it still gives us 50. So the price shouldn't be staying as high as it is. The fact that the price is staying actually pretty firm, even now in November, suggests to us that there probably is a black hole sucking up modules somewhere. And that that might be China, it might be Europe, it might be inventory in Europe. Um, it might be that more is being built than we think. It's basically, although the the fact that the, the prices for the commodity polysilicon are staying this high strongly suggests that there's something we haven't quite got in our demand supply model. And it's not, I think, less supply than we think. So it sounds like what you're describing is just a normal supply-demand um, imbalance of what, or maybe balance, right? So you're saying that basically what's going on in the market is that prices for polysilicon, which is the furthest upstream you get in solar, which is the bottleneck right now, polysilicon. And then that bleeds down through the price of panels and ultimately into the price of projects. Um, you're saying that this is sort of just how much is getting installed versus how much is getting produced. To what extent is solar or has solar been subject to some of the supply chain bottlenecks that have plagued like basically every other industry on the planet this year? Or is solar pretty insulated and what's happening here is just like, you know, we have more demand than we have supply at the moment? So I think solar is worse than most industries. First of all, solar is still um, affected by disruptions. So if your transformers don't arrive on time, then even if you've got all the other components, you can't finish your project and that's affected solar. If you're trying to make solar modules and you run out of EVA, then you can't make your solar modules. And so all those little things have made it more difficult to build solar this year. But also there is in places inventory build up. You know, there is, we couldn't, I think, have built 500 gigawatts if we had the modules ready to go either because of, of there isn't 
the labour to install them in all markets. There isn't the grid connection ready to take them. There isn't the permitting. So there are multiple bottlenecks. But the polysilicon one is probably the worst. It takes at least 18 months to build a factory for polysilicon, even in China, and a lot a lot longer anywhere else. And there has just not really been enough polysilicon to to keep the prices low. So I don't think that's been the main thing that slowed things down, but it is also a bottleneck. My sense would be, so, okay, so I'm going to go back to your limits of PV build this year have been, and this was the list that you put in the opinion, supply, labor, grid access, and permitting. So on the supply side, as you said, polysilicon seems to be the current bottleneck. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that that one seems like a classic solution to high prices is high prices. We've seen this play out before. There have been periods of tight polysilicon supply in solar, though it takes 18 months in China and longer in other countries to build up new polysilicon supply, we have no shortage of raw material. There's no, there's nothing stopping us from doing that. So. Absolutely. Polysilicon is just made of sand. sand and en- you need sand and energy to make polysilicon. And there is nearly a terawatt of new polysilicon manufacturing capacity intended to come online in the next two years. So we think that this, the, the polysilicon shortage, we strongly think will end maybe in the next three months, although I've been saying that for a while. So um, every Wednesday, I'm my team are betting on what will happen to the polysilicon spot price and going, is is this the week it goes down? Is this the week it goes down? And then it goes down a little bit and then you check the yuan to dollar um, exchange rate and it's just because the dollar has got stronger. <laughs> but we do expect the polysilicon spot price to start dropping any month now. All right. So that bottleneck we presume goes away with time, whether it's three months or six months or a year. But what about the other one? So installation labor, grid access, and permitting. So the, the labor challenge, we've seen this in many markets as well. You mentioned Germany residential installers. You know, We've seen some of this in the US as well. And I think as demand grows faster, the labor challenge becomes even larger. Is that one that you foresee exacerbating over time? Or is that one that you see alleviating because the demand growth is clear and we're just going to have to train more folks to install solar? That'll probably go in fits and starts. It will continue to be an issue because one of the things that will help in Germany is that the prices for residential solar systems are going up, which presumably means it's more lucrative and you can train more teams of people to go and and get on roofs. But at the same time, there's a limited pool of people who who are able and willing to go and get on roofs to put solar panels up. So you don't have an infinite supply of labour and you're competing with other industries I think it's that's going to be a, a cyclical thing, probably. Yeah, it's also probably tied to the macro economy and the labor force in general, and whether you're in an environment where it's easy to find labor or hard to find labor and, and so on. Um, but then that gets us to the last two, which I'll combine together, grid access and permitting. Both of those are sort of geography-specific, right? Every country, every region has a different permitting regime and a different interconnection process. I spent a lot of time looking at this in the U.S. context, and it's um, terrifying, especially the the grid access side of this. Like, I think interconnection may end up being the single largest bottleneck to the energy transition or even climate tech across all things. But I'm not as deep in it in the global context. So I'm curious, ex-United States, how big a problem is grid access? Uh, and you know, where do we see it? Is there anywhere outside of regimes like China where you don't really have a traditional interconnection process? Is there anywhere that has it solved? No, I don't think anywhere has it solved. 
And it's not, it's not just a policy thing either. Fundamentally, the grid is not infinite. There are not an infinite number of sites that are suitable for solar or to put it another way, unsuitable for other uses that you, and that are also next to grid connection. There are things that governments can and are working on to make that easier. So the, the European Union is proposing to more or less automatically allow rooftop solar nearly anywhere with a, a permitting time of a month. The idea being, I think, if I understand it correctly, that you apply for permits to build a, a solar project on your roof and if you don't get them in a month, you can just go ahead and build it. And, and of course, if it's a building, then it already has a grid connection and you can probably sort that out, even though you may not get paid for the exported power. There's also a lot of work in, in Europe on lifting restrictions on using t- certain types of land. And the reason I'm linking land and grid is that it's about finding that combination of where there's good land for this, which may not be good land for anything else, and access to grid, that, a grid that's not particularly congested. And then it's about having enough people working at the grid planning office to identify that connection to the grid will not be a problem and can be done. Australia has done it, parts of particularly Western Australia have done this quite badly by just saying, oh yeah, you can connect to the grid. And the result is a very high curtailment for some projects because you've got a lot of projects on one node, which you can partly fix with batteries. You know, you can put batteries on so that when you've got periods of congestion, you save the energy and then you send it off later. But it's not ideal. I think of interconnection as being a problem for distributed, for for behind the meter rooftop stuff, but potentially like an existential problem for utility scale front of the meter projects, certainly as I look at it in in the US where you see, you know, these interconnection queues that can be years long, right, waiting to get projects installed. I, I think that's true in some other places as well and maybe will become increasingly true the more we build. It is definitely. I mean the more, the thing is that when your grid goes out into places where there's lots of of land that is not particularly that is suitable for solar so generally where land is not particularly valuable the grid is then going to be carrying a lot of power back to other bits of land probably. And then you have very high grid congestion risk. And historically that hasn't been a problem because there just hasn't because most of the power is quite centralised. So one major thing that nearly every country should do is just um, staff up its planning offices, have people that actually go through these grid queues and say, good idea, good idea, not a bad idea, and just let the developers know. Because the developers know that they're not going to get grid permits for everything that they file for. Um, that's the whole job of a developer, to file 100 grid connection requests and maybe get 10 of them approved. What they'd really like is a yes or a no in a reasonable time frame. Okay, let's move on to second opinion, or I guess bundle of opinions. This one is near and dear to my heart. Okay, so we're going to combine three of your opinions here. The first one is the fundamental opinion, which is number four. We don't need a technology breakthrough. Today, solar developers just need a grid connection, to the point we were just talking about, and permission to sell electricity, and they'll be off building solar plants, whether it's a good idea or not. Okay, combine that with... Opinion 25, which is I, again, you, refuse to get excited about perovskites until a perovskite company can disclose a commercial partnership with a named major module manufacturer. This was your opinion in 2018, 2019, 2020, and 2021, and it is your opinion still. And then finally, we'll combine that with opinion 46, which is building integrated PV products, or BIPV, are usually attempts to sell bad solar products for premium prices to gullible aesthetes and architects. All right. So stepping back from this one, this is about like there, 
there has always been and probably will always be a vocal contingent of people pushing for the next big technology breakthrough in solar. Um, I'd say perovskites probably have gotten the most attention as the next big technology breakthrough in in solar, maybe short of like concentrated solar power. So why is it fundamentally that you think, or at least that your view is currently, one, we don't need any of this stuff, and two, it seems like what you're saying is the excitement around both perovskites, and we'll talk about building integrated PV2, is a little bit unwarranted. So firstly, the reason why I would like this kind of hype over new technologies to die is that I occasionally encounter the opinion that we shouldn't build solar until it's better. It doesn't need to be any better. It's fine. It does the job that it's meant to do, and it does it pretty cheaply these days. And perovskites is one example where, like, I hope that we have a perovskite breakthrough and that we get even better modules than today's module. But perovskites are a lab tech. They're a family of um, lead compounds which have, in the lab, progressed relatively quickly from very, very low efficiencies to only moderately low efficiencies. And the lifetimes are still pretty terrible. That You still don't have a perovskite lab product that would really last 10 years in the field. And bear in mind that silicon solar modules are under warranty for, for 25 years, and a lot of developers are talking about 40-year lifetimes being assumed these days. And I think perovskites get the attention because they could give you a breakthrough in, in cost and, and efficiency. They could increase your efficiency for, by several percentage points at a very low cost because they're not very expensive. Use it in tandem junction with crystalline silicon. But what you have to do is look at the companies that are making crystalline silicon modules who are probably quite good at doing so and know what they're doing and say, and, and they could probably make a lot of money by adding a perovskite layer to their output and selling a slightly more efficient product, more watts per meter squared. Great for them. Why are they not doing? Probably because it doesn't work very well. And these are literally the people whose job it is to make that decision and they're saying it doesn't work very well. Maya Berger is not... Meyerberger, a Swiss um, company that's pretty much the expert in, in heterojunction solar cells and manufacturing equipment, which is now going into cells and modules, not using perovskites. I don't think that that's going anywhere in the next five years, and I don't think we should be waiting for it. I wish the company's doing it luck, but we shouldn't be waiting. As for building integrated, when was the last time that somebody told you about building integrated and talked about the energy production? Usually these are like kind of bad thin film silicon modules or sometimes crystalline silicon modules with bits etched off them to make them see through. Well, we should clarify what we mean by building integrated PV because I think there's a couple different versions of it. So building integrated PV is where it has a secondary architectural function. Right. So this, this would include both solar glass, which is a long vaunted, never really deployed category, as well as something like the Tesla solar roof, right? Like the building integrated roof tile type of thing. Exactly. And they're both a waste of time. <laughs> I don't disagree with you. Okay. So one, solar is great, and but there are supply chain bottlenecks, installation labor bottlenecks, grid access and permitting bottlenecks. Two, we don't need a technology breakthrough, though you wish those who are seeking one the best. Let's move on to... Um, to the next opinion, which is number eight. High input prices for solar plants, which we talked about, have been largely irrelevant this year because electricity prices have risen much more. 
However, developers that signed fixed-price power purchase agreements before 2021 have suffered badly. I think the second part of that is what's interesting to me. So the first part is fairly self-explanatory, which is solar prices have risen, but electricity prices have risen even more, and so the comparative economics for solar have continued to be good. Um, But describe what's happening to developers who signed PPAs before 2021. They're in big trouble. There was a period where auction, where the prices that developers would offer solar for was just going down every time an auction was held. And there was fierce competition to get these prices. And if you worked as a developer, you had to play the game. Because if you applied for all these auctions and never won, then you wouldn't have a job. Whereas if you applied for these auctions and won and just didn't manage to build the project in two years' time because component prices didn't fall as much, financing costs went up, various various factors might act against you, then you'd probably still have a job because you did win the contract after all. And you could always go and work for a different company. And it would sound a lot better than I just didn't win any auctions ever. I always bid too low. So I think what you had was a lot of these these sometimes sub-$30 per megawatt hour power contracts in places where that was very marginal when they were offered. Like that was, If that was possible to build at all when they were offered and not gambling on further falls in the price of equipment and finance, then it certainly wasn't possible this year. So in South Africa, in some other geographies as well, you do have projects that have just been stuck in not proceeding hell because it the economics no longer work for the contracts they're locked into. Are we seeing are we seeing PPAs get renegotiated? There was a period when we saw this happen in reverse in the US, where like the early um I think the PPAs that were signed largely by like the California utilities in 2009-ish, they were super, super rich. This is back when polysilicon prices were really high in one of those previous waves. You know, and uh, and then module prices crashed, and it turned out that all those developers were those projects were super rich, and a few of those PPAs ultimately did get renegotiated down. Have we seen any of these getting renegotiated up, or are the projects just kind of sitting in limbo? A mixture. So, what some European governments, notably um, France, Spain, and Portugal, have done, and they all had basically state auctions, so the government was involved in this. They've said, if you build your project now, we'll give you the merchant power price for the first 18 months or until your project was due online. And since that is, well, technically the cap is 180 euros a megawatt hour. And if you think of these projects as being signed at um, 30 30 euros a megawatt hour, then 180 for 18 months makes a huge difference to economics and it does get the, um, it gets the projects moving. And of course... Possibly in America, you don't realize how much we are absolutely freaking out about the our dependence on Russian gas and the high power prices this summer, and the fact that we actually nearly ran out of gas last winter. Just that was even before Russia invaded Ukraine. We were already having gas problems for unrelated reasons. So power prices have been really, really high. There's a cap of 180 euros per megawatt hour because. To, to, to solar and wind generators to as basically a windfall tax on their profits. The merchant rates have sometimes been up to 600 euros a megawatt hour. That's wild. Um, yeah, you know, I think we've had various periods in history and we'll have them again where, you know, the the dynamic of uh, project developers and bidding for PPAs 
gets really competitive. They have to make some rosy assumptions in their bids around the cost to build, around the cost of financing, around merchant curves in the long term. And then depending on where the world goes within the period between when they bid and when they actually have to line up financing for the project, it either looks really good or it looks terrible. And we're in one of those periods when some of those projects start to look a little bit terrible. All right, let's move on to the next opinion. Number 16, uh, back to my home turf. You said, the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act appears to be a license to print money for solar and hydrogen firms. We're not going to talk about hydrogen today, though we'll do that another time. Uh, An unsustainable boom in build and manufacturing is possible, though this may be muted because the U.S. is a difficult country to do business in. I'm interested in two components of what you said there. One is, what would constitute an unsustainable boom in build and manufacturing in your mind? Like, I agree with you, we're going to build and we're going to, you know, develop and manufacture a lot more solar thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. What what would make it unsustainable to you? What would you be looking out for? And then two is, is what, what about the U.S. as a difficult country to do business in that might mute that? I've seen a lot of solar incentives come and go. And a lot of the time, the reason they go very quickly is because they cost a lot more than expected and very clearly over-incentivize build. Now, in the US, it's a tax credit, right? So it's sort of avoided tax. So I don't think you're going to get a just a massive bill for cash going to the government, as I understand it, which has been the case in Spain and Romania and... Um, and um, Czech Republic, Italy. Exactly. Vietnam. I remember those. Those were feed-in tariffs. Feed-in tariffs was the, the big one, but sometimes, but yeah. But nonetheless, I think if if the US builds sort of five times as much as any protection currently is, which it could, because the incentives the the incentives look pretty generous to me sitting here, and I've seen it happen in the past that just more solar gets built and starts pumping out solar cells and wafers and modules like mad and and supplying its own market and exporting to Europe and. Europe starts to put starts to bring in the World Trade Association on America for stop dumping your products on Europe and eventually it just gets a little overheated a little too complicated it's the government is ultimately bankrolling this whole thing and it could be the case that the government goes mm, this was not such a good idea on the time frame we planned let's cut cut this a bit short shall we and this is what typically happens with policy that is over generous so This is probably a topic for another day, but I've had this conversation many times with people since the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. Sometimes it's in reference to the renewable tax credits. Often it is in reference to the hydrogen production tax credits, which is that people think, look, this is too rich and at some point we're going to have to pull it back. I'll make the counterpoint. Here's why I do not think that that is going to happen. It's a few reasons. One is in the US, we have a great track record of never, basically never pulling back on existing tax credits once they exist. We sometimes don't extend them, but it'd be very difficult to uh, point to a situation in which there has been a tax credit in place scheduled to expire at some point in the future that we have caused legislatively to expire early. It requires Congress uh, to decide proactively to remove an existing tax credit. Occasionally it happens, but it's very rare because once we've given something away, it's tough to pull back. And usually there is a strong constituency that emerges in favor of keeping the thing. Uh, Which brings me to my second point, which is, you know, the scale of the uh, avoided taxes, as you said, as opposed to the outlay, uh, even in a 
fairly positive scenario. I mean, it could be some really big numbers, particularly for solar and wind. I think much bigger than it could be for hydrogen, just given how how much that market has to ramp up. They could be big numbers, but let's keep in mind that in the U.S. we deliver much bigger tax-related subsidies to things like ethanol and oil and gas, and those have sustained a very long time as well, again, with an industry uh, and a constituency that is very strongly in support. So I'm not like a professional legislative prognosticator, but I think the assumption that just because these are rich subsidies and they could result in a really, in a big boom in manufacturing and in deployment suggests that we're going to, we're going to have to pull back on them at some point. I don't necessarily think that comports with how the U.S. legislative process generally works. So your political system is so screwed up, it could maintain excessive subsidies for a very long time. Yeah, got it. Indeed we have, right? Like ethanol is your classic example of that. I don't think very few people (laughs) will argue with you that we should be keeping the ethanol subsidy exactly as we have for as long as we have, but we do. Okay, so this maybe brings the second bit, which is that the US is hard to do business in. Um, The thing is that applying for all these subsidies, particularly as a tax, tax credits, is skilled work. It's it means employing a lot of people to cut the financings to um, to jump through all the hoops, and it incents them, which is why U.S. solar capexes are consistently thirty to one hundred percent higher than in than for similar projects in Europe. And your your import tariffs don't help either, but that's actually only a relatively minor part of it. When com- when solar manufacturers look at setting up factories in the U.S., they say, well. Okay, but it's hard to find a site. It's then hard to get workers who are going to be skilled and, and say the distance. It's going to, it's difficult to get the permits to do all the work we need to do. Basically, everything about doing anything in the US involves often trying to get those tax credits and and jump through the hoops to compete with other other um, places where that ta- those tax credits could be realised. So yeah, it's a, just a difficult business environment compared with places that are a bit simpler but less subsidized. I think that's true, but at the same time, generally we figure it out because the market is big enough and if it's lucrative enough, people people will figure out a way to do it. In my mind, the constraining factor on what will ultimately be the tax impact on the federal government is is more likely to be something like interconnection. Like I think that's where that's where the rubber's gonna hit the road for the pace of renewables growth that we see. Perhaps also the, you know, market-driven impacts, depending on how fast we can roll out stuff like uh, energy storage and other things to manage intermittency. And so, you know, depending on how negative power prices get in certain places, that can have an impact on financing. But with those tax credits, it's not as big a deal. So we'll see. But um, but I'm, I'm, I'll make the bet that, that the, uh, the tax credits last as long as they are currently written into the bill. And you'll have solar panels everywhere. Well, that's the point. Sometimes in places they make no sense at all. May also be the point. We need a lot of power. I mean, we're trying to, the other thing, you know, uh, which I've talked about many times, is that we're going to, we're trying to decarbonize electricity while doubling the electricity grid uh, over the course of the next decade. That's not a small feat. means we need a lot of renewables if renewables are going to be a big part of it. And better late than never. But a lot of countries have thought the same thing and really pushed the accelerator. And it, they might have been better off accelerating a little more gently, but more sustainably. We shall see. Okay, let's move on to the next one, um, which is actually a good, this is a good segue into the next one. So opinion 29, 
Batteries for residential solar systems are becoming standard offers in Europe and in the U.S. Frankly, some of the sales proposals are of indifferent veracity, and the current software isn't up to economically optimizing when batteries charge and discharge. So describe what you mean when you say some of the sales proposals are of indifferent veracity. So I've been I've been reading a bunch of UK proposals for my parents and others, and um, also a few German ones. And like, frankly, I think the salespeople are making it up. They're they're when salespeople sell solar systems, they have a very strong incentive already to assume that the power prices will increase and then tell the consumers, oh, it will pay back in X years or it will make you an IRR of um, 50%. And, and you look at them and they're actually assuming well above inflation power price rises, which of course right now in Europe is what we've seen. So people are freaking out. People are seeing power prices much higher than they have in the rest of in, in their lifetime before and if you assume that that continues for the next 30 years, then yes, you get very, very high IRRs. Um, I don't think there's much real modelling behind some of those assumptions. And when you add a battery, there's often the assumption that there are some very simplistic assumptions being made about um, how often the battery will charge from the solar and discharge, about what self-consumption rate you will you will acquire based on that. And I know they're not even collecting that much data about the system, so they don't really have the means to to do that. They're making the most crude and, of course, being salespeople, the most generous to them assumptions. Maybe it doesn't matter, but I don't feel that the that in Europe, at least, the way solar systems are being paid gives consumers the um, tools to accurately assess the financial of their system. That said, maybe it doesn't matter. If you bought a system two years ago, you're laughing because the prices have risen so much high, so much more than you expected. Right. One thing I'm interested in, um, so as, as residential batteries emerged as a market in the US, you know, it was true in most places initially, and even through to today in most parts of the country, there's not really an economic value proposition for a behind the meter battery, it's the the sales pitch has been less economic, less financial, and more around backup. Where we have had regions of the country that have had meaningful outages, uh, and so the value proposition is a resiliency driven one, not an economic one necessarily. Is that uh, is that true in Europe as well, or is it is it primarily an economic one? And there, because of that, what you're describing, the sort of like assumptions that go into the financial uh, modeling component of it matter more. Our grids are mostly better than yours here in Europe, so I think that it's less of an issue. There are some people who are who are concerned about resiliency, of course, there always will be, but I don't think that's a major driver. Okay, we're going we're going to do two more. Uh okay, second to last one, opinion 48, there is enough land for lots of solar. There are enough golf courses in the US for about 370 gigawatts for fuck's sake. There's also loads and loads of roofs, so let's see those who oppose ground-mounted solar support higher-cost roof-mounted solar. Um, I, first of all, I just like your golf course comment. I uh, agree with you 100%. There's actually a great, I don't know if you ever listen to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, but he has a whole episode just on the ridiculous amount of land that we dedicate to golf courses in the United States and the value of that land and how insane it is that it is so underutilized. So I agree with you there. But let me ask you this. Generally, um, it sounds like what you're saying is that you don't think land is going to be a fundamental constraint to solar development. Is that generally true everywhere? And is it? And to what extent does that differ by location? You could imagine saying, yeah, we have plenty of land 
in the U.S., but Europe is actually much more land-constrained. So ground-mounted solar in Singapore and Hong Kong is probably not going to be a big part of their energy use, because those are basically city-states. And, um, and it's somewhat constrained in Japan as well. Europe, it's, it's really a mixture, because we have plenty of land in Europe that, first of all, used to be used for industry and isn't anymore, or is used for agriculture, but not particularly productively. You know, it's technically zoned as agriculture, but it's not actually that good. It generates a little bit of very subsidised wool and um, mutton. Um, so I don't think... And when, when you actually look at the percentages of the land that you'd have to use, you tend to, to get a very high proportion of your electricity from solar. You don't actually have to use very much of it in the end. Now, I totally see why it makes more sense to use roofs and car parks and um, land that is not competing with, with food, even potential food production or rewilding or, um, or biodiversity. But I, I think ultimately this is a bit of a storm in the teacup. And if you want to find the land to build plenty of solar, the important thing to do is to make sure that you're putting on it on the right land that is not being used for other very valuable purposes. Okay, last opinion, which gets to the, the heart of the matter, which is your PV forecast of how much solar are we going to build? Okay, so opinion 20. Our, this being your PV mid forecast, which is the highest you could get the regional analysts to agree to while allocating most capacity to actual countries, not just a buffer, is only 4.2 terawatts cumulative by 2030, which is rather below the 5.3 terawatts that BNF models we need to be on to get to a net zero by 2050 high renewables path. So what you're saying is we're going to get to 4.2 terawatts of solar by 2030, which is, I mean, that's a lot. Where are we at today? We just went over a terawatt. So we're going to quadruple the amount, the cumulative amount of solar we've ever built in the world between now and the end of 2030. And yet, that's not, that's 20% shy of where we need to be uh, in, on a net zero pathway. What, what's, the, what's the fundamental constraint that you see there? So personally, I think that the fundamental constraint is that our forecasts are probably wrong and we're probably not being bold enough about just like making up solar because you can't see what's going, you don't have good visibility on 2030 for solar. You know that there are huge theoretical pipelines, but there are all kinds of, of difficulties with realising them. And once you start talking to the developers of solar projects, they will give you tens of reasons why their job is really hard and it's very difficult to build solar projects at all. At the same time, we've seen drastic growth in the past. And also when I go and talk to my colleague, who's an ex, my colleague Caroline Chua in Singapore, who's an expert in um, Indonesia, then she doesn't see much happening in solar in Indonesia at the moment. Power prices are very low. The national utility is generally quite happy with burning cheap coal. And she points out that why should this change by 2030? So I can't bully her into putting lots of solar into Indonesia, which has a massive population, and because she's actually the expert on it and I'm not. I strongly suspect that there will be more solar in, Indone in Indonesia than we've forecast. Solar will get cheaper than coal there. It will find places to ease in. The government will probably even change its policy. But when you, when I go through the quarterly process of talking to all my analysts around the world, they cannot imagine the sort of transformative change that has happened in, say, Hawaii or California or even Germany, where you've got solar going from nothing to, to 10% to 20% of electricity and we could easily go higher. And that's even before you start thinking about 
are we going to build solar to make hydrogen? And I suspect that by 2030 we are, just because we've got no idea how else to um, manage the problems of, of intermittency and how to decarbonize steel and fertilizer. So some of it is literally just that we have that we can't see where this demand is coming from. But the history of solar shows that it there's always more solar than you think there will be. That is definitely the history of solar, as I understand it as well. And a good way to end here. Jenny, this was a lot of fun. Thank you so much for doing it. We'll, uh, we'll do it again next year when you publish your new set of opinions. Thanks, Shale. Um, have a great day. Jenny Chase is the head of solar analysis at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. How'd we do on this one? There are lots of solar opinions out there, I know. Do you work at a perovskite company or a BIPV company and think that Jenny is wrong about being down on your industry? Uh, let us know there too. Send us your feedback on Twitter at, at CatalystPod, assuming Twitter still exists by the time we release this, or via email at catalyst at postscriptaudio.com, or via smoke signal or Morse code, carrier pigeon, you, you decide. We accept all forms of communication. Send us a voice memo by recording yourself on your phone and then email it to us. Again, the email is catalyst at postscriptaudio.com. And if you like the show today, go over to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and review. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to today's topics and the full list of Jenny's solar opinions. As always... Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf, mixing by Greg Vilfrank and Sean Marquand, theme song by Sean Marquand. Our managing producer is Cecily Meza-Martinez. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst. Catalyst.